Today's reading is Matthew, beginning chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amidabad, Amidadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel. Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the Gospel of Christ. Uh, don't clap him. You've got a few wrong, Thomas. Come back. We're not going anywhere until Thomas gets it exactly right. Well done, Thomas. Yeah, we're not looking at that passage today. I just thought it would be funny. Uh, good morning, everyone. Firstly, Aaron and Grace and the music team, thank you very much for, the, for that. I, I love it. Isn't it important in church life to have laments? Because sometimes you come to church and you're not feeling joyful and wanting to praise the Lord because sometimes we're struggling in life. And the Psalms are full of laments because when the Israelites got together, that was sometimes what they did. So great to hear that, because it will be exactly what some people are feeling this morning, and we need to hear it and uh, be aware of it. Uh, Very nice to see you all this morning. Uh, Thanks for being here. Well done for um, sitting through James's slot. What was that about, James? (laughs) Uh, It was very good on baptism, very good on confirmation, but the bishop stuff was all, what the heck? (laughs) Let me pray, and then we will uh, get into things. Heavenly Father, it's a lovely morning this morning and what a great joy it is to be able to be here together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to sing your praises, to be able to share for those of us going through times of lament what that means before you and in our relationship with you. Uh, For some of us to sing praises to you with just joy in our hearts, with thankfulness uh, overflowing, to be able to come before you in prayer, bowing our knee before your throne as the Lord of all, 
and to sit under your word. And we pray that now as we spend a few moments hearing that reading that Thomas just gave us, a, a reading which is quite odd to our ears and full of names that many of us won't know, we pray that by your spirit, you've given it to us for a reason, by your spirit you may speak to us this morning. Stir our hearts and our souls. Deepen our love for you. Draw us closer to you that we may love you more and serve you more faithfully. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Thursday, uh, New Zealand celebrated Waitangi Day. And it's a great day of celebration for us as a country. We, one of the things we did was we looked at the past to get a better understanding of who we are as we face the future. And that's a really important thing to do in life. We don't do it all the time, but there are times when it's very important for us to do that. Because where we come from informs who we are and impacts where we're going. I've been thinking about that personally quite a bit lately, thinking a lot about family over the last couple of weeks. And one of the sadnesses in my life is I don't know much of my family history. Uh, our reading today is basically a genealogy, a family tree. I don't know most of my family. Uh, three out of my four grandparents were dead before I was born. The one who was alive died after when I was about two. I'm looking at you, Dad, is that about right? Uh, if you put a family tree in front of me now with just the lines, not the names, I couldn't fill it in past above about ten names. Uh, because my parents are immigrants and the rest of my family live back in the UK and I don't get to go over there and see them and all those sorts of things. Uh, what, where we come from informs who we are and impacts where we're going. And as we begin this morning a new series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew starts an unusual way. None of the other Gospels start like this Gospel does, but Matthew does. He obviously wants us to look back He's about to give us a biography of Jesus, a life of who Jesus is and what he did and what he said and those kind of things. But before we get there, he wants us to look back before Jesus because looking back is going to give us a better understanding of who Jesus is and what the future therefore looks like. It's been a while since we were last in a gospel here at St. Stephen's. I think the time is right. Uh, there's all, the word, all the scriptures are God-breathed and God's word for us and useful, but I do think it's important every now and then to get back into a gospel because it's there that we encounter face to face as it were the Lord Jesus Christ who is our King and our Saviour and so we're starting this series this morning in the Gospel of Matthew but I nearly missed this passage out um, but then I, then I found out Thomas was going to have to read it and I went no we've got to do it no not for that reason I, I nearly missed it out not only because you think well let's get into it Matthew let's get into the kind of serious stuff but because I preached on this passage about eight years ago um, but not just that, my dad preached on it two or three years ago and I nearly said, just go back and listen. My dad's sermon's still on the website. Go back and listen to uh, that sermon. But then I reflected on it and thought, no, Matthew thinks it's important when he's starting his biography to begin with this. And so we will begin with it. And we'll think about why he's put it at the beginning of his gospel. Who are we to argue with Matthew? And if we're going to start a series of Matthew, let's start where Matthew starts. So let's have a think about it. It can feel a bit of a letdown when you know that you're about to get into the gospel and get into Jesus and who he is and what he said and what he did. You can sometimes feel a bit let down that why does this important book start in this kind of off-putting way? Shouldn't there be something at the beginning of the gospel that grabs us, that shakes us out of our comfort zone, that makes us stop in our tracks to think and, and instead we get a, a family tree? 
we get this long list of names, which many of which I'm sure we, we don't really know or are not that familiar to us. What a letdown. What a disappointment is the beginning, you might think. But Matthew's doing something very important as he begins this biography of Jesus. And there's a few things in this genealogy that are easy to miss if you just kind of glance at it. And we, this morning we have the privilege of pausing for a bit and thinking about why it's there and what it's saying. And Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. It's very clear that Matthew uh, wrote it for his, his intended audience was Jews who would have picked up on all the significance of these things. So let's have a think about uh, the genealogy. Actually, I should just say, there's two genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels. One is at the beginning of Matthew, one is three chapters into Luke. They're a little bit different, and I won't go into the details here, but sometimes the difference worries people. So let me just say something on it very briefly. The, the genealogy in Luke is longer, it goes right back to Adam instead of Abraham, and it's the reverse order. So it starts with Joseph and then goes back to Adam. Whereas Matthew's, as we've just heard, starts with Abraham, doesn't go far as back, and goes from Abraham to Joseph. Uh, but it's the difference of uh, names that causes some people uh, some problems. Some of the names on the genealogy are different. After David. And so some people have kind of wrestled with this. Sometimes it's said, well, the genealogy in Luke might be Mary's genealogy and the genealogy in Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. But both seem to say they're Joseph's genealogy. I think they're Joseph's genealogy. I think the way to understand it is one goes down the kingly line, so after David, that's where the names change, and in Matthew's it goes down the kingly line. Solomon, Rehoboam, uh, keeps going down that line. I think Luke's is the actual, literal genealogy, what we would expect in a genealogy, uh, whereas the Matthew one goes through the heads of that part of the family. It's still Joseph's line, but it's talking about the kings in that line, which was still the line that he came from, but that's the difference. Well, let's have a think about it. Notice that straight away in verse 1, I think there's a question for a discerning reader. Verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see the question? Right from the word go, Jesus is mentioned particularly in line with David and Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. Why are they given special prominence? They're, both of them are going to come up in the genealogy itself. In verse 2, we'll read of Abraham as part of the genealogy. In verse 6, we'll read of David as part of the genealogy. But they're set apart and mentioned specially here in verse 1. They're also mentioned in verse 17, at the end of the genealogy. So why, are the, why do they have this prominence? We'll park that for a moment, uh, but keep it in mind as we go through the rest of the verses. Carrying on, we then see the genealogy itself, the family tree. It starts, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father, dot, 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 dot. We'll, we'll stop before all the complicated names come in. And then it goes all the way through to verse 16, if Alex, we can have verse 16, where it gets to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus called the Christ. So the genealogy goes all the way through, but then verse 17 tells us how the family tree is structured. Look at verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. That's verses 2 to 6. 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. That's verses 6 to 11. And 14 from the exile to the Christ. 
verses 12 to 16. So there's three sections to this genealogy of Jesus. And just so that we're, we're all aware of who those names and events are, the first section is 14 generations between Abraham and David. Abraham, you'll remember, is the patriarch of Israel. Every nation starts with one person. Israel starts with Abraham. He was the patriarch. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, they become the 12 tribes. So Abraham is the first of the Jews. David is the second king of the Israelites. At some stage in their history, the Israelites started having a monarchy, kings. David is the second of the kings, but the greatest of the kings. So the first section of the the, uh, genealogy is 14 generations between Abraham and David. The second section is 14 generations between David to the exile in Babylon. Now the exile in Babylon is one of the low points of Israel's history. It's when Israel was defeated in war, but not just defeated, they were taken captive and taken out of their land as slaves to Babylon. And so they lived, as, this is where the, some of the Psalms come in, and Boniem, by the rivers of Babylon as we sat down and remembered Zion. They're prisoners in Babylon thinking about the land they came from. That's the exile. And then the third section of the genealogy is the 14 generations between that exile and the coming of Jesus. And so you've got this, the whole of Israel's history is encompassed in this, uh, up until that point, is encompassed in this genealogy. From the high point of David to the low point of the exile, the start with Abraham, it's all there. So that's how it's structured. Well, what jumps out from the verses for you? What questions are raised by it? It's always good when you're studying the scriptures, I think, to look for the unexpected, to notice the unusual, the things that are odd or seem out of place. And I think when you, when you go through this genealogy, there are two questions above any others that, that stand out. The first is the one I mentioned before. Why are David and Abraham spoken of differently? Why are they highlighted, given prominence? So let's consider that question first and then I'll I'll talk about the second one in a moment. As I said, they've got their normal place in the genealogy in verse 2 and verse 6, so why the special mention of the 2 in verse 1? Why is Jesus known especially as the son of David and the son of Abraham? Uh, Linked to that is, if we can put verse 6 up for a moment, why is David called king, King David, in the genealogy? Now you might say, well that's not too strange, Jay, you just said it himself, he's a king, that's true. But all the names mentioned after him are kings as well, right up until the exile part. So Solomon was a king, but he's not called king in the genealogy. Rehoboam was a king, but he's not called king in the genealogy. Abijah was a king, all of them, right through to the genealogy. Only David is called king in the genealogy, so why? So what's the significance of David and Abraham, and why is David called king in the genealogy? Well, in verse 1, David comes first, so let's deal with him, then we'll deal with Abraham. In the storyline of the the whole scriptures, in the storyline of the Old Testament especially, David is very important because David is the king of Israel par excellence. He's the king. Israel, they, they have lots of kings, but David is always thought of and remembered as the king. Israel enjoyed their best time under his leadership. They were the most prosperous under him, the most at peace, the most united, and most importantly, the most faithful to God. 
But under David's leadership, something else happened. God made a promise to David for, for, for God's people. Now, I won't get you to look at it now, but you can look it up later when you get home if you want to. Chapter 2, uh, uh, two Samuel chapter 7. The promise is made in a few different places, but that's one of the most important. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised David that one of David's sons would be God's own son and would rule forever. Now think about that for a moment. David's made a promise by God that one of your sons will be my son and will rule forever. And this promised son of David who would rule forever became known by the Israelites as the Messiah or the Christ. Same word, different language. And so the Jews were always looking out for one of David's sons who would be God's son who would rule forever. And so what this genealogy is doing is saying, this is the one. David's son that we've been waiting for this whole time. Israel was always looking forward to the day when someone from David's line would be the one, uh, who would be the one who was going to fulfill God's promises and rule eternally. And so all the way through the Old Testament, you can see them going, well, is Solomon the one? Is it going to be Solomon? Solomon's pretty wise. Nope, Solomon's a failure. It's not Solomon. Will it be Rehoboam? Will it be Rehoboam? Nope, Rehoboam's worse than his dad. And it gets worse and worse. So they're waiting all the time. The genealogy says it's this guy. That's massive in the Old Testament because it says it's this guy. Jesus is here. That's why it says King David here because it's making us remember, oh, King David, the one who's going to have a son, who's going to, that, that's what the genealogy is telling us. But the genealogy is telling us more than that because he's telling us that he's the son of Abraham because God had made promises to Abraham as well. Remember, before Abraham, there's no Israel. Abraham's the founding father. And in Genesis chapter 12, God had said, you remember he took Abraham out, showed him the stars and said, your descendants will be like the stars. He promised that he would be a great nation. But God promised more than that to Abraham. He promised that all the peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham. Literally, in Genesis 28, it says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." or seed, you and your seed. And we know when we get to Galatians that the seed of Abraham is who? Jesus. So it doesn't say in Genesis how this blessing for all people will happen, but it's somehow through Abraham, this genealogy is saying it's Jesus that's the fulfilment of that promise. The promise of God to Abraham, through you, through your seed, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. The genealogy says that's fulfilled in Jesus. This genealogy tells us that Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills all the expectations and promises of the Old Testament. And I want to tell you why this is important this morning. It means you can trust the promises of God. These promises happened thousands and hundreds of years earlier. And think about it. There must have been times in people's life when they were going, well, I know you promised it, God, but I haven't seen it. It hasn't happened yet. It's not my experience in life. Can I really trust you? That experience is the experience of all Christians in life. And you can think, well, I, can I trust God? I'm not sure if I can. The genealogy shows you can. You may not trust people easily. There will be people here this morning who know the scars, who know the pain, who know the wounds of being let down by people who betrayed you, who deceived you, 
who didn't keep their word. You may have been let down too many times by people in the past. You may have uh, had promises made to you not kept or vows given to you not kept. You may have had word given to you not honoured. And we can sometimes get into the mindset that God's like that. He's not. And the genealogy is one of the, the beautiful examples to see that we can trust him. God keeps his promises. Now, his timing is not our timing. Sometimes when we're going, well, when's it going to be fulfilled? When's he going to keep? That's all in his hands. But you can trust his promises. There are some people who can't believe that they're forgiven by God because the weight of their sin is so much on their shoulders. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the God who made that promise. If he promised you that you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Some people don't feel like they, can, they, can, they know that God loves them. God promises to love those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust his promise. There are some people who can't believe that there's going to be a new creation. And a new creation, when there's no death, and there's no sin, and tears are wiped from our eyes, you can trust it, because God's promised it. And God keeps his promises Every single one, even the ones made a long time ago, even the ones that seem unthinkable to us, you can trust him. This genealogy is a wonderful reminder that we have the privilege of having a God as our Heavenly Father who keeps his promises. You can trust him. That's the first question the genealogy raises. Why is David and Abraham given such prominence? Because it shows who Jesus is more clearly. But there's another question, I think, in the genealogy, and that's over the women that are in the genealogy. There are four women in the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 1. Five if you count Mary at the end, but four if you, you, you're looking at the normal course of the family tree. I wonder if you noticed them as, as Thomas was reading it. So in verse 3, you've got Tamar. In verse 5, you've got Rahab and Ruth. And in verse 6, you've got the wife of Uriah. Now, why are the women mentioned here? It's... It's certainly not normal in Jewish culture at that time to mention just normally, under normal protocol, women in a genealogy like this. So if it happened, it's very likely it's for a reason. They've been specifically mentioned. And I think that makes sense when you read the genealogy. It must be deliberate because the verses run fine without the women being involved. If you have a look at verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, and it could just move on to the next, next one, but it says, whose mother was Tamar? Now, we don't find out most of the mothers uh, that are in this genealogy, but Tamar is mentioned. Again in verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, oh, whose mother was, Bo was Rahab, by the way. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, by the way, but not the other mothers. Again, do you see, the names don't need to be there, so why are they? That makes us ask, why these four women specifically? And some people say, well, it's because they're all prominent. All those women are mentioned in other parts of the Old Testament. And th that's true. But apart from Ruth, all the rest of them are pretty minor. Ruth is the exception, and she's got a book of the Bible named after her. She's fairly prominent, I think. But lots of people don't really know much about Tamar. Lots of people don't really know much about the wife of Uriah, and they're pretty minor. If you were looking to highlight some of the wonderful women of faith of the Old Testament... You, wouldn't you be talking about uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, who's much more well-known, who's much more prominent, or Rebecca or, or some of those? But we get Tamar, Rahab, the wife of Uriah, whose name isn't even mentioned. So why 
are there women in the genealogy at all and why these particular women? Well, have a think a bit more about the four and as soon as we do that, we discover that there are some common bonds that they have. And one of the common bonds is that they are all a little dodgy in some sort of way. Am I allowed to say dodgy? I think I'm allowed to say dodgy. Tamar, if you remember. Where does Tamar come up? Genesis chapter 38. I've preached enough from the scriptures that I don't remember all the passages I've preached on. I will never forget preaching on Genesis 38. It's an incredible passage. It's got stuff about Onan that I don't want to think about. It's got stuff about Tamar. There's a lot that goes on in Genesis 38. But Tamar's part is she seduces her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship. She seduces her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship. Rahab. You may remember Rahab uh, from Joshua chapter 2. We're not always told people's professions in the scriptures. We're not always told what they do. But we are with Rahab. She was a prostitute. A prostitute. Before she helped the Israelite spies. Remember, she hid them and then lied about hiding them uh, back in Joshua. And the wife of Uriah as well. The wife of Uriah is best known for one incident that she was involved in and it's her name that's known. So it's interesting, her name's not used here. Who's the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. What's Bathsheba known best as? Having an affair with King David. So three of the women have this quite checkered past. Ruth, of course, doesn't. Ruth is awesome. Uh, as I said, book in the Bible named after her. But, but let's keep thinking about the four women. There's another link to them. They're all What? Gentiles, they're all non-Jews. Well, to be precise, three of them are, but have a think about that. Tamar's a Gentile, Rahab's a Gentile, Ruth is a Gentile, Bathsheba was a Jew. But I think this is why it doesn't say Bathsheba. It says the wife of Uriah. When Uriah comes up in the book of Samuel, what's he known as? Uriah the Hittite. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And so in the, in the genealogy, she's linked to her Gentile husband, which makes us think Gentile. And so, this is, so they're all Gentiles in some way. And this is where the rub is for Ruth, because although we wouldn't say that Ruth has got a, a, a kind of terrible character in terms of her actions, she wasn't just a Gentile, she was a Moabite. And a Moabite was seen as some of the most opposed peoples to God. They were part of the enemies of the people of God. That's serious. And so do you see that all four have a very dodgy lineage in some ways? They are the kind of names that you would deliberately leave off a list like this if you were wanting to impress people with your family tree. These are the names you would omit. These were the names you'd go, oh, I wonder how that got rubbed off knowing full well how it got off. When people talk about a black sheep in every family, here are some of the black sheeps, and yet Matthew has deliberately included them, not deliberately excluded them. He's kept them in, not omitted them. Why? Why would these names be in there? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is, and I think this is true and important, it shows that God works even through flawed families. It's worth pointing that out. We can sometimes think that the Lord could never use me because I don't come from the right family, because I don't have the right kind of uh, details. Some of us are ashamed of the families we come from. 
and we think that our family or background or history excludes us. I would say, I'm not trying to be rude to anyone here, but I would say that not many of us here this morning, here at St Stephen's, are from the kind of families where just our surname alone opens up certain doors. There are people like that, aren't there? But not a lot of us would be that. We come from the kind of families who just get those opportunities and options because we've got the right connections, because we've got the right surname. But not only do we not have that most of us, we can sometimes think the opposite is true, that some, some doors are closed because of where we come from and who our family tree is and the, the disgrace that's been in our family. Or we could never rise above our flawed heritage, never be of much use to God because of our ancestors. Not a bit of it. Families are very important in the Scriptures. I hope you know that God works through not just individuals but families. For those of us part of families all of us, think about that. God works through families. Make sure you commit time and effort to your families. God works through families, but he works in and through all families, flawed families. And we see that in the genealogy here. Jesus' genealogy was very flawed. And I've only picked on the women because it's an obvious question. We could go through the men and see it even worse. It's not like um, uh, Bathsheba should be blamed here, and, and da- but David's this great king. We, we could go through all of it. So it shows us that God works through flawed families. But more than that, more even than that, what the genealogy is, it shows us who Jesus is going to come and be the saviour for. The baby about to come, the baby who was at the end of this family tree that Matthew starts his gospel with, comes from a family tree with a patchy record to say the best. Why? Because he's the one who came to save the patchy. The one who came to save the flawed. He came to save men and women, Jews and Gentiles, kings and peasants, the morally upright and the morally bankrupt, the high flyer and the lowly. Jesus came as saviour for everyone. Everyone. For you and for me. Today, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter what you've done in your past or what you've been through, no matter what, Jesus comes as your saviour if you'll follow him. I hope you know that. And this genealogy shows it more powerfully than most of the scriptures. The birth of this child that came at the end of this genealogy over 2,000 years ago is the most important event in the history of the world except for one, which is his death, which is when he gave the rescue for you and I. But that's who this one that Matthew's about to focus on is. And the great thing about him is that he's for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Nothing rules you out. Doesn't matter your family history. Doesn't matter your status in life. Doesn't matter your finances. Doesn't matter the things that you've done in your past or your life choices. The only thing that can rule you out of benefiting from Jesus is you if you choose not to follow him. The tragedy is some do choose that. Or they know who he is and they never fully commit to him. They muck around with him. And yet he's the saviour for all. In Jesus is acceptance. I tried to write down some of the things that the world needs that we find in Jesus. And the world just seems to look for it everywhere. Can't find it anywhere, but won't find it in Jesus. I came up with this list. You'll probably come up with more. In Jesus is acceptance. The world wants acceptance. You find it in Jesus, yet so many won't turn to him. Forgiveness. 
People want forgiveness, desperately need forgiveness. They don't find it anywhere else. You find it in Jesus. Security, confidence, love, the ability to change, all these things are found in Jesus. These are the things the world craves for and they're found perfectly nowhere else but they're on offer for every single person in Jesus. Every single person in Jesus, no matter who they are. Your race, your gender, your actions, your history, your personality, none of these things exclude you. We're used to in life, or I am anyway, I don't think I'm the only one, being excluded uh, just based on things about me. I'm used to it. Uh, sorry, Mr. B, and that's not for you, that's only for only members of our gold class. Uh, sorry, Mr. B, and uh, that's not for you, that's for black card members only. Uh, sorry, Mr. B, and you can't go in this building, it's only for people who, who uh, were studied at this particular institution. Uh, sorry, Mr. B, and you can't enter this country if you've got a criminal record or the wrong documentation. We're used to being rejected because of things about ourselves. Remember I, to- I told a story a few years ago of when I went to Kenya, and um, uh, when I went to Kenya, I, l- I lost, I didn't lose. <coughs> I had stolen by a crack team of robbers my passports. And so I was in Kenya with no passports. And I think I said when I shared it with the church family when I came back, I'd still be in Kenya if it wasn't for Steve Miner, because Steve Miner was part of the group and Steve's Kenyan. And, and Steve... Uh, and, a, and this is Nairobi, right? So it's a city of millions of people, but Steve seems to know everyone. And so he, he was able to take me to every person I needed to get my passport. He got me a drive... He'd, he'd pull over a car. He'd just wave over a car on the street and say, oh, you've got to take Jay to the police station or the airport. Or He, he did all that. Steve had un, un, kind of restricted access in Kenya, except when I had to get my uh, passport from the British embassy, Steve had to wait outside. Steve wasn't allowed in the British Embassy. Only if you've got a British passport or they think you've got a British passport or you used to have a British passport can you go in. And suddenly Steve, who was used to... Unre- couldn't go in. And it was a, he was probably pleased. Because remember what was the next thing I did? I set the alarm off at the British Embassy. <laughs> and all these people with guns started running. And the safest person in Nairobi at that moment was Steve Miner on the outside because he couldn't be in. And, but... We're used to restrictions in life where you can't do something because of who you are or you can't go somewhere because of who you are. Not with Jesus. He's for everyone. He's for you, no matter who you are or your background. He's for me. He's for crazy Uncle Ben or awful cousin Samantha. He's for those who've fallen a great distance and don't have anything else going in life and for those who've just been wandering blissfully in life, unaware of things until they realise who he is. Jesus is for us. And so do you see that this genealogy, rather than being a boring list of names at the beginning of the exciting stuff, it's an explosive start, because it shows us that Jesus was the guy that everyone was building, everything was building towards, everyone was waiting for. This was the guy that God had been promising would come for such a long time, now he's here. All the plans of God in the Old Testament, Jesus is the guy fulfilling it. All the promises of God in the Old Testament, Jesus is arriving, he's the one who's going to fulfill it. All the purposes of God from the Old Testament, Jesus is coming. The one at the end of this family tree, he's the one it's all been waiting for. Matthew's saying, he's the one, don't miss him or ignore him. And then secondly, it tells us who this great one's come for. 
And the great news is, he came from and for Tamar. He came from and for Bathsheba. He came from and for me and you. And that's what he is. Don't ever feel like you're not worthy with Jesus. You are. You're not from the right family or don't have the right qualifications. If you know you need him, he's yours. That's Jesus. That's who we're going to be confronted with over the next few weeks as we get deeper into Matthew's gospel. But we're not just going to be confronted. That's who we're going to be comforted by. That's who we're going to be challenged by. We're going to get everything in Matthew's gospel. But it's worth it because he's worth it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, our great saviour, our great shepherd, our great king. We thank you that he loves us. We thank you for your promises and the confidence we can have that you keep those promises. And Father, I pray that that would encourage each of our hearts. Lord, it's a privilege to live for you and to live for Jesus. And I pray for any here this morning who don't yet follow Jesus. I pray that they would, that they would know that they too can come before him and have him as their shepherd and saviour. I pray these things in his precious name. Amen.